Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast from the Australian Men's Shed Association, shoulder to shoulder, virtually. Hello and welcome to episode four of series two of The Shed Wireless. This is the Father's Day episode. Coming up, he sings arguably Australia's most famous song. Colin Hay from Men at Work, the man who sings Down Under, has a brand new song out. It's a real earworm, you'll hear it, and he's going to join us from Los Angeles to talk about reinventing yourself and finding new purpose. We head to Leshenolt Men's Shed. Where's that? Western Australia will be talking craypots, cubbies, and you'll meet the ex-copper called Sergeant Savage. I kid you not. Hugging men. Do you do it? And how's your attitude to affection different to your dad's or your son's? Stuart and Rip will both be in for a cuddle, COVID safe one of course, and they're back, not one but two of Australia's, perhaps the world's leading experts to talk about focal therapy. If you don't know what that is and you've got a prostate or you love someone who does, this is something you want to know about. It's revolutionising one of our biggest concerns. All that and a whole lot more ahead in this episode of The Shed Wireless. Hello, I'm Aaron Carney, and we are joined by the Executive Officer of the Australian Men's Shed Association, David Helmers. Hello. Hello, Aaron. How are you, mate? How's your week been? Yeah, very busy. Never a dull moment. I can see the same for you. Is that paint spatter I see all over you? It is, mate. I've been participating in that game I don't like a great deal, mate, called painting the house. Um, moving furniture, crawling around my knees and those, what are they, I, they, those nails they put down to hold the carpet. You believe this? They call them a smooth edge. There's nothing smooth about the things, mate, especially when you put your knees on it. <laughs> And painting is one of those things in life like uh, playing a cover drive or hitting a straight golf shot where it looks really easy when someone else does it. Yeah, let's not even get into the topic of straight golf shots, mate, because <laughs> that, ain't, that ain't been happening much either. Let's talk Father's Day for a moment. You are a father and you have a young man in your life. I only have girls. And, of course, you had a lifelong relationship with your dad as well. What's Father's Day mean to you, looking up and looking down, as it were? I've been that busy. I really haven't even thought. You know, a great deal of Father's Day coming up. I know Billy, he gets very excited and he generally buys out the entire Father's Day stall <laughs> at the school for me god love him you know <laughs> get a lot of stuff to wash the car with and all that type of thing but also you know on a personal front Aaron like this is this year's the first year mm. to have father's day without my father um he passed away like late last year from dementia and mm. yeah so it's going to be different this year because you and he were very close yes yes we were and you know i think and that's reflected in the relationship I have with my son Billy we're very close you know like Billy's my shadow the same way as I, I was my with my father's shadow and yeah, you know, when I think on it as you know um, I was a baker for the first quarter or more of my life I started helping dad in the bakery when I was you know, I, I help in exclamation marks there mate there you go because <laughs> um, I used to go into the bakery we used to live on top of the bakery in a, in a unit when I was about five year old but you know I started working I think I did 20 odd years in the bakery and when I look back at it mate I don't th- these days I know I never wanted to be a baker I just wanted to go to work with me dad 
And that was a very unique experience. You know, it was something hopefully one day, don't think, you know, Billy will ever be working with me, but I wish he could. You know, I might have to go back to bacon pies, mate, so he can come to work with me every day because it was a... It was a game changer in life, you know, going to work with my dad each day. He was my best mate. Yeah, and I think fatherhood's one of those things where it's kind of hard to count the profits from having a good dad, but it's certainly often easy, and this is not universal, but it's often easy to count the losses from not having a good dad or father figure around. Yeah, I try to be as, as good a father figure as I can, yeah, with Billy. Um, but in, in all this thing with, you know, that we're going through with COVID, it really hit home when a couple of weeks ago, Billy said to me, he liked having me home all the time. And since that child had been born, I'd been doing this job and constantly on planes, you know, at least once a fortnight, mm-hmm. I was away. Mm-hmm. And since March, I haven't been anywhere. And that's had a big, you know, it was interesting to look at how much it was affecting him, that travel and how much he had actually noticed it, to comment that it's great me not travelling and he doesn't want me to go ever again. I've had a very, very similar experience and it's quite sobering. And It is. While I'm nostalgic for some of the things that have gone away in COVID, I only made the observation at the weekend, when we move the other side of this, I'll be nostalgic about the amount of time I was able to spend with my family during this period as well. Mm-hmm. So I think there's yep. something about embracing the day in amongst all of that. Uh, that's a bit of a theme that comes through in the Colin Hay chat as well. And I know you have followed him closely. You've even seen him live, have you not? Yeah, I've seen him a couple of times and I, I highly recommend it to anybody to see Colin you know, when he tours again. And he does little obscure concerts here and there with small crowds and yeah he he's, he is a great entertainer and um we're bringing out the big guns now getting people on this on this program and people like colin hay doing it you know live from la and telling his story you know i hope people really enjoy that section today and there's a heap more in the pipeline as well. And one of the reasons why we're keen to talk to these high profile people without giving too big of a spoiler alert is that basically all of the things that they feel are exactly the same things that we feel uh, on a daily basis. You know, that sense of searching for purpose, searching for company, finding meaning in life, looking after yourself, all of those sorts of things. Yes. And I think Colin had to go through what a lot of men do go through when they retire a lot earlier in life with men at work they were international huge megastars especially in the u.s and like with all everything in that industry the ride you know the roller coaster ride comes to a stop eventually and he had to deal with with that and reinventing himself well funny you should use the word roller coaster because he not in this conversation that we'll hear in this episode but he has said famously on the record in the past that Normally, fame is a roller coaster and you slide down the big hill. He said it wasn't for him, it was a cliff. (laughs) (laughs) One day he was a rock star, the next day he was invisible and that took some dealing with it, really did. It really would. Now, we have some important uh, AMSA HQ housekeeping business news, however you want to frame it. There's some info coming out of your office that we really should be sharing with everyone. Can you elaborate, please? Yes. Finally, after 
a lot of work and this goes back, I think we've been working on this for a total of eight years now. It has finally happened. The deductible gift recipient amendments to the Australian taxation laws allowing men's sheds to be eligible as DGR charities has passed both Houses of Parliament as of last Tuesday, the 25th of August. And it's just uh, the moment it needs to, What there's one last thing, it has to be formalised and passed into royal assent, meaning it is becomes Australian law. But within the next few weeks, this, this will happen and sheds, men's sheds around Australia will be eligible to apply through the ACNC, the Australian Not-for-Profit and Charity Commission for charitable status, and then to the ATO to receive DGR status. So it's been a lot of work in doing this over the years and something, to be honest, I thought would never be able to achieve. We've actually had to change the taxation laws of Australia to do this. So it's been a a major achievement. What's it going to mean practically? And if you can answer that in two parts, what is the dream scenario? What's the incentive for getting involved in this? And then perhaps secondarily, you can talk about the process in order to become eligible. By being a DGR means two things. They can write a tax receipt for any donation above $2 to to anyone who wants to donate to the shed. So that's a big incentive for, for people to make donations to a men's shed. Uh, it'll be the same as any other ma- major charity. They can you know, claim that donation on their tax. Just as important part is that a lot of corporate benevolent funds out there that sheds would be eligible to apply to require the applicant to have DGR status. There are a lot of these type of grants out there available and one of the things that's always been holding sheds back from applying for these corporate grants is that they did not have that DGR status so it opens the framework for them. The process and we're working very closely with the ATO and ACNC we've been in a lot of co-design meetings with both departments on how this will uh, look and there'll be more information out about this in the in the coming weeks and hopefully Aaron in the next couple of weeks we'll be able to get someone from the ATO onto the program to explain it to all the listeners in more detail but once a shed applies for the charitable status uh, they'll be able to apply for the DGR but they will have to make some changes in their governing documents either you know that being their constitution to make sure they are aligned with the requirements set out by the ACNC so that process hopefully will not take too long but the sheds will have to make those changes if they haven't already done so to the governing documents to make sure they're eligible. All I can say is please keep your eyes across the correspondence that comes out of AMSA HQ and tip all of your other shedder friends, particularly those who are on the executives and who are running sheds, please tip them into this, the Shed Wireless, so that they can get the very latest information because this has a huge upside, but there is a bit of process to go through. So that is very exciting news and watch this space. All right, let's get on with the show. Staying strong. Staying sharp staying healthy with the shed wireless now normally when we catch up with Stuart Torrance he does some research and brings it to the table so for this chat 
I wanted to do the same. I found this piece about touch and human contact in the COVID era on the Conversation website actually turned up in my social media feed a couple of weeks ago, and I went and found it again. It's written by Catherine Jansen Boyd, reader in consumer psychology at Anglia Ruskin University, and she writes about human touch. People benefit from physical touch throughout their lifespan, and there's a large body of evidence showing that it has the ability to affect both short and long-term well-being. For babies, in fact, it is crucial for healthy brain development. The emotional impact of social touch is ingrained in our biology, and there's evidence that it triggers the release of oxytocin, a hormone that decreases responses to stress. In fact, touch has been shown to cushion stress levels in humans. The last few decades have seen a decrease in social touch. Partly, this is down to the fact that we are living in a technology-based, socially disconnected world where people are more likely to communicate virtually rather than meet in person. It means that we are touching each other much less than we used to. But the decline in touch is primarily due to a fear that it may result in an accusation of inappropriate touching. So what does all that mean for men touching men? And I don't mean in the weird, giggly, schoolboy interpretation of that. I mean in the context of Father's Day, father to son, son to father, father to son-in-law, male-to-male relationships, perhaps even in the shed context. I don't know if I've ever actually hugged Stuart Torrance, but I've done the old handshake and pull in, but that was in the time before COVID. He is the Men's Health Project Officer at the Australian Men's Shed Association. Hello, sir. G'day, Aaron. How are you? Yeah, good. You know the one where you shake hands, but then you kind of pull them in and it's almost shoulder to shoulder? Touch shoulders. It's like a pat on the back, but yeah. at the front. <laughs> and I mean, I have to say I'm I'm a toucher yeah. and because of what I just read there, it, it feels weird even saying that but (laughs) I particularly with men I find that touch is the way that differentiates somebody from being just someone you know to somebody who you're signaling you're a bit closer to me than just everybody else oh absolutely absolutely I I um I have that reticence to go in for the cuddle, and yet I'm a, cuddle, I'm a cuddly person. Like I, I love a, a cuddle with anybody, so I'm not fussy, Aaron. I'll, I'll give you a cuddle later on. It's, it's all good. <laughs> we maybe put our masks on and have a cuddle. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get the plastic sheet in between us. And, you know. But in that respect, I, I hear what you're saying. You know, you look at somebody and you go, "Are they going to?" take this inappropriately? Are they going to take it uh, in the manner in which are they going to read into it? All sorts of weird and wonderful things. So, you know, from a bloke's point of view, sometimes you are reticent to actually do the thing that's actually on your mind, mm. especially when it comes with, with women in the in the Me Too era, children in, in regards to the pedophilia and all the other uh, horrible things that have gone on in the media over the last few years. So I think we've actually started to um, regress and actually draw away from each other when what we should be doing is is probably getting closer uh, and renewing those bonds. And Father's Day is a, a good place to, to sort of start that. What men in your life do you hug? Uh, all my brothers. I've got four brothers, my father. Um, I used to hug my father-in-law. I've got my fishing mate. We sort of hadn't fished for... Oh, about two weeks. And the first thing we did when we saw each other at the boat ramp was give each other that manly handshake drawing, you know, for the shoulder touch. And, and it was 
it was like, mate, I've missed you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there any men that you kiss? Yeah, I've kissed my father. Can I pry and ask the circumstance? Is that a common thing or was there? No, a... no, it, it, I, I got brought up in a, 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 um, a Christian mm. household and um, the good book says uh, greet each other with a loving kiss and I remember the first time I did it, I, I read that that particular verse and I went, oh, that's that's something I should do. So I went up to my father one Sunday morning and I said, hi, Dad, and I gave him a kiss and he sort of looked at me weird. Uh, and then when we went to church, um, I walked into the church and there's one of the elders and I grabbed him and gave him, he doesn't know me from a bar of soap type thing. <laughs> and he was really taken back. And it was from that moment that I sort of went, oh, maybe kissing isn't the, the the right thing to do. It's definitely not something that's done in the Western world. I know it's done in Europe and, and places like that and um, the Middle East uh, where you, you kiss on both cheeks and all that sort of stuff. But I remember when I kissed my father uh, that, that morning and then kissed the elder, my father felt right. The other guy didn't. And... From that moment, it was like, hmm. So the only person I've sort of kissed from there on in would be my brothers or, or my father. So it's, it's, you know, strictly uh, down to family members uh, and females. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I think probably the last man I would have kissed was my grandfather, and that was effectively a goodbye kiss on his deathbed. Yeah. It was that. And, again, I gave very little thought to that. That just felt like the right thing to do. Yeah. And that's, I don't know, six six or seven years ago now, I think, and I wouldn't have kissed another man since then. But the other thing is I don't have sons. You, you don't have sons either, do you? No, no, I have two sons. Do they get a kiss? Uh, when they were little, they did. They're a bit big, big and ugly now. <laughs> one's, one's 21, I think, or 22. He's 21 or 22, uh, and the other one's 30-something. But I'll give them a cuddle. You know, we um, we embrace a lot when we when we meet each other. But, nah, kissing's probably not something I've instilled in my family, maybe to my detriment. Not for me to judge, and I have no frame of reference for that because I don't have sons, and I'm a big kisser of my daughters, albeit they're still very young. Mm. But my wife and I very deliberately kiss and touch appropriately and hug in front of our children as well because we think it's really important to model affection because kids, just the same as they learn a language or they learn how to eat good food, so they learn how a relationship works. And so I'm I'm actually way more comfortable in the female space. Even I work alone now, but when I worked in an office environment, I had a number of incidents in recent years where I hugged women, but I had no problem with it at all because the, I think, or at least in the workplace I was in, the conversation has got to the point where I just asked. So in most cases, it was a circumstance where the woman was upset about something. Mm. So she was crying or whatever. My instinct was to go to hug her. And I just asked, I said, do you need a hug right now? And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And all right, well, you bring it in. And then I opened my arms and she came to me, right? 
but, but I don't think I would go through that dance with a guy yeah. for some reason. And I like to think of myself as very egalitarian and gender neutral and all of those sorts of things. <laughs> but I, I don't think I think I don't think I could do that. So how do we make sense of what is or isn't appropriate? Is the gut instinct enough? As you said, you knew that it felt right when you kissed your dad, but it felt wrong when you kissed the dude at the church. And should we just trust our gut or should we be asking maybe? It's strongly related to the culture that you're brought up in. In the Western world, it, it seems inappropriate. Yeah. And yet in Europe and uh, and places like that, it's um, a, a given. Um, that That's the the greeting on every occasion uh, was a peck on two, two cheeks and, uh, and the like. So I, I think culture has a lot more to do with it than our own gut instinct. Um, it's what you're brought up with. Obviously, kids in the Middle East and, uh, and Europe and the like are brought up doing that action and they see nothing more of it uh, than a handshake. And yet we're not brought up with it. So when it happens, and if it happens, it, it sort of, I suppose, makes us feel a little uncomfortable. Judging what is appropriate is probably beyond your and my pay grade in this context. So let's bring it back to a healthy approach to something. What do you feel that you give and get from male to male affection? Let's start with uh, get, first of all. What do you get from it? Well, I, I put down encouragement as, as top of the list. The, the fact that someone is prepared to go into that uncomfortable zone, uh, so to speak, mm says, hey, you know, you are high on my list of people that I appreciate. And for someone to do that to somebody else in in the Western culture, you know, you've got to be either very familiar uh, or high in someone's uh, standing to to go in for a a cuddle and uh, and a a kiss, say. So I I think it's encouraging and what's the word I'm looking for? signaling don't you think it's signaling to the other person that's certainly my motivation when i'm doing it i want to say if i'm hugging some guy goodbye what i'm signaling in doing that action is dude you're closer to me than a handshake that's what i'm trying to say to him you're you're inside the handshake zone right yeah you're you're up there you you know you're you're akin to my father totally or brother in that regard, I, I, I hear what you say. What you said at the beginning in regards to babies uh, and touch, on another level, that acceptance and um, that nurturing bond that you get from touch, uh, I think is something that we also get out of uh, the male-to-male touch. Even if it's just a pat on the back, uh, footy players are touching each other on the butt every time uh, they score a try and what have you. Uh, just a funny aside, could you imagine a local postie every time he delivered a letter, you know, wanting to get a touch-up? You won. Hey. <laughs> well, put it this way, I don't recommend doing it at Bunnings. <laughs> <laughs> you might come no. across Karen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And she'll do more than film you. Um, <laughs> and so let's go back to your fishing mate example. When you had that pull-in slap on the back, pull-you-close moment, mm. What did that do for you? Oh, it was just a re-cementing of this is our relationship. This is where we are at. A bit like a couple of roosters sort of eyeing each other off. You're no threat. Okay, let's get on. The the chest gets puffed out and you're, you're sort of going, we're in the man zone. 
I don't have any grand wisdom to impart on this because I think that this is a work in progress and I actually wonder whether 20 or 30 years from now we're going to be talking about the perfect storm of the Me Too movement and the rise of technology and the fact that COVID made us standoffish and distancing and we might be counting the cost of that for years, generations, in fact, but equally, given all of those factors, Hmm. I ain't going to sit here and say, let's all hug each other more because I don't feel that's appropriate either. So the only wisdom I can offer out of this is uh, good luck, everybody. But as with everything in life, if in doubt, ask. If somebody, if you want to hug somebody and you're not sure, ask. Uh, You want to bring it in? The worst I can say is no, I guess. Yeah. Just thinking about Father's Day. If you have a father, go and hug him. It might be a long time since he's had one. Uh, and, and in that regard, that, that human touch uh, is going to say so much more oh. than a, um, a loud tie, so much more than a, yeah. a leather-bound uh, fur-lined stubby holder or that hanky that they'll never use. Go in and, and, and give them a good hug. Hey, and if it's your father, give him a kiss uh, and just tell them how much they love them. They'll be so much more appreciated than those um, temporary sort of gifts that we give each other. Yeah. Uh, something to, to leave us in, a, a, once again, the thought of um, Father's Day was a quote by Steve Martin who says, fathers carry photos where money used to be. <laughs> That's so very true. And you did have some great wisdom to impart there. That is really the take-home message from this conversation. Thank you. I promise I'll be bringing it in with your permission, of course, the next time we see each other face-to-face. Thanks, Stuart. You're a champion. Thanks, Aaron. That is Stuart Torrens there, the Men's Health Project Officer at the Australian Men's Shed Association. Got a thought? How do you navigate this stuff? We'd love to hear from you. Drop us an email at any point and tell us how you get through these muddy waters. Time for our Shed in the Spotlight. First up show and tell. Let's showcase a project or product from our shed. Leshenault Men's Shed in WA is our shed in the spotlight and we'll hear a little bit more about the shed itself shortly but first we want to hear about a passion project what's setting their imaginations ablaze in this particularly picturesque corner of WA here to answer that question is interim secretary of the Leshenault Men's Shed Bob Jenkins hello sir hello Aaron you have a particularly unusual pet project a couple of them but let's talk about the craypots first of all Aaron we not long after the shed started uh, we had some inquiries from a couple of retailers nearby that asked if we could make some cray pots. And cray pots, of course, uh, are known as, would be known as rock lobster pots on the East Coast. Hmm. So we started making them at first out of um, recycled material, a lot of pallet wood, and they became quite popular amongst three or four places that we make them for. But they, they are designed principally for the recreational fishers, not, not professionals. Hmm. Before we go any further, can you give us a visual description? What do they actually look like? Well, they're a trapezoid-shaped uh, wooden structure. Uh-huh. Our, our big ones are about 750 mils long, about 500 wide and about 400 high. 
and they have an opening at the top in which crays can go in and they have a bait box that we, people can put bait in and they have escape hatches down the bottom and uh, they're attached to a rope bridle and set on the ocean floor nearby and during the season uh, people can go out and catch, catch a couple of crayfish for their own personal use. And it's pretty much that old trick. There's one way in and they come in looking for the food and then can't get back out again. You pull the pot up after a couple of days and open the hatch at the bottom and if you're lucky, there's a lobster inside. Is that a fair summary? Yes. Yeah, that's the idea. Good. What sort of wood do you make it from? Well, we're currently making out of West Australian hardwood and, again, it's salvage timber um, and we get some offcuts from sawmills and things that we can process. And they have evolved over the years, so that now they have a, a metal base. And uh, we do all the fastenings with uh, stainless steel. And even the bridle to hold the ropes on is hand spliced by one of our old ex-farmers in the shed. So they're rather, uh, they're a good pot now, popular with mm. recreational fishers, two sizes, a large one and a small one. Yeah, they're uh, they're good and they uh, they're quite a good little learner for the ship. So you said it's mostly for the amateurs, but who's your market? Well, recreational fishers. You have an outlet in Australia, <clears> in Busselton, in uh, Margaret River and Augusta. And do any of the boys from the shed actually make use of these themselves? Because what you're only about ten minutes from the coast, aren't you? Yeah, we're not that far away. And yes, a couple of the, a couple of the folks in the shed do have the pots, but the remarkable thing is, despite us making cray pots for five years and some of the folks having one, we have never seen a crayfish at the shed. <laughs> it <laughs> sounds to me like you need to release one on remit and have them to pay in lobster at some point. Well, we would do, but I'm not sure our treasurer with the deep pockets would accept that as payment. <laughs> and while I've got you, we're talking about passion projects. I can't imagine anything that's a much further walk then from uh, cray pot to a cubby house, but that's the other thing that your shed's quite famous for. Yes, it is. And our first ever project was we uh, we made a, a cubby house, and uh, it was raffled, and it was raffled to raise money for the shed, and very successful. And then we made a couple of more, and uh, we've since uh, continued to make them, but we make them more on commission these days, and they're a, a pretty substantial structure. Two things about that. Can, again, you paint us a picture of what one of these looks like, some dimensions and the style? Okay. They're roughly built on a 1.8 metre base, 1.8 to 2 metre square base. They uh, are about uh, 1.8 metres high, um, and they're normally built, out again, out of timber and clad with either fibre sheet or weatherboards or... Uh, whatever material we can get hold of. And uh, oddly enough, uh, with our first two cubbies, we actually carted them into our local shopping centres and displayed them. And the most common comment we got when ladies of our age and over 50s went past, they'd look at it and say, well, I don't want them for the kids, but I could put the old man in there when I'm, I'm mad at him. <laughs> I gotta tell you, mate. When I heard the dimensions, that's the first thing that popped there. I'm pretty tall. I might have to go at an angle, but I reckon I could spend a night in there if I had to. Yeah, well, we had to, and we we actually do make them big enough to take a bunk bed for the blokes to sleep in when they're in the pool. 
<laughs> sort of the glorified doghouse, if you will. The glorified doghouse, yes. <laughs> and I guess the real charm of these things, because that's that's a pretty hefty bit of gear that you're talking about, is that you've designed a way to make them flat packs now. We have. We've done <laughs> we've done several in flat packs. We uh, we built build all the modules here, and then we cut them off. We've got a, a five meter car trailer at the shed. We load them on the, the car trailer take them in and uh, assemble them on site for the people that want them. Because it's often necessary because of the difficulty in getting a structure that big in, into a backyard these days. How many of them do you reckon you would have moved over time? Oh, in the past 10 years, we've probably done 10 or 12 cubbies. And it's been that long since you first had the idea? Right from the first time the shed opened. In fact, the very first year we were open, we, we decided to, to build a cubby to raffle it to raise funds at Christmas time to raise funds for the shed. And that continues to be a source of revenue? That continues to be a source of revenue. I think we completed one about two weeks ago. And I heard around the traps today that uh, someone else is looking to purchase one shortly as well. The result of our cubbies is, of course, that they are built by ex-carpenters and ex-trade people. And uh, though we don't have to, they're probably cyclone-proof. So there's no no half measures, and when people compare them to what they can get at at a well known, I shouldn't say, it, but a large hardware store nearby, mm-hmm. uh, there's no comparison in the quality. No, one hundred percent. And you know what? I hear that time after time, whether it be purchasing toys that are made in the shed or any product that's made in the shed, mass production means a little bit of heart went out of the process and a little bit of attention to detail. And that's what you get the cheaper price for often, but no question that the quality is far superior. Thank you so much for telling us about your special project or projects in this case and keep up the good work over there. Okay, thanks, Aaron. That is Bob Jenkins, who is the Interim Secretary of the Leshenault Men's Shed. Shedder in the Spotlight. Let's meet and learn about the life of one of our shedders. Our Shedder in the Spotlight is former Leshenault Men's Shed president. His name is Jerry Savage. Hello, Jerry. Hello, Aaron. How are you? Yeah, I'm great, thank you. Appreciate you joining us on the Shed Wireless. What's your story? Well, it goes back a few years. Uh, I was born in uh, Rabaul in New Guinea uh, on the island of New Britain in 1949. Near the volcano? Near the volcano, the town that doesn't exist anymore. Oh, you were actually in the old town, were you? Yes, yes, most definitely. Perhaps not everyone appreciates this, Jerry, but there's effectively a local version of Pompeii in northern Papua New Guinea where the volcano exploded and effectively buried the town, which is the town that you were born in. That is correct. I think it was 1994 it erupted Mm. and has been doing so pretty much continually to this day. And uh, the township was moved out to um, a satellite town of Kokopo, uh, which is about 15, 20 kilometres on the other side of the harbour. Why did you come to be in Papua New Guinea? I was born there. Uh, in fact, I was the 50th expat Australian born there post-war. Is that right? Uh, my father took his discharge from the army up there at the end of the war 
and was asked by the government to uh, set up a livestock experimental station in a place called Kurukakal, which is on the north coast of um, the Gazelle Peninsula. And uh, from there I uh, did what all kids do up there is attend primary school, lived a fantastic life. At the end of primary school, of course, there was no satisfactory secondary education up there in those days, so we all went off to boarding schools. And uh, I went to uh, boarding school in Charters Towers, all souls in Charters Towers for six years, uh, just uh, west of Townsville. Mm. Completing my uh, secondary education, went back to New Guinea and worked on plantations for several years. Uh, that's copper and cocoa. Found a lovely lady I decided I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. And um, by this stage of the game, New Guinea had become self-governing, not independent. And the political climate changed rather drastically from there on in. And I decided it wasn't the best place to uh, expect uh, a young lady to, to live let alone bring up a family. So in 1972, moved to Queensland, in fact, Brisbane. Started looking around for something to do and wound up joining the Queensland Police Force and pretty much travelled all over Queensland. Most of my time was uh, in the far north and west. I see. Uh, when I say the far north west, uh, I'm talking Normanton. Uh, was my first posting out of Brisbane. From there, we spent about 10 years on the African tablelands. Then I was promoted to become a cranky old sergeant, and they moved me out to a place called Julia Creek, which is between Townsville and Mount Isa, about two, two and a half hours east of Mount Isa. So I worked out there for a couple of years and went, was transferred to uh, Kenmore Police Station in Brisbane, where I was the OC. A few years down the track there, I had some health issues and uh, wound up getting out of the police force on, on medical grounds. So how long were you a copper for? 20 years. The beginning of it, I was sworn in on the uh, 15th of December 1973. Right. So you went through to the early 90s. And went through... And went through till uh, 1990, I got out of the police force. How did you see policing change in that time? Biggest change, I suppose, was uh, towards the end of my career in the police force was the um, uh, infamous or well-known Fitzgerald inquiry, which has happened to a few other states uh, since then. But that dramatically changed the, uh, the police force and... Um, Yes, certainly, certain things had to change. Not all of it, all for the good, but that's the way the things had to go. And uh, it was was the early days of, of uh, present police policing, which we see today. What did being a policeman teach you about human nature? <laughs> a lot. Most people are decent, law-abiding people who want to live a hassle-free life. Unfortunately, there is a minority of our population who choose to live a different lifestyle, and um, it was beholden of us to ensure that those good people led the lifestyle they expected. And uh, being able to do that was, was very, very rewarding. Um, I found during my career, particularly in small country towns, you were able to 
make significant changes to the town and you're able to develop a very, very good working relationship with the citizens of that town. If you treated people the way they like to be treated, they would back you to the nth degree. I've always found that, that um, people try to be treated the right way will do anything for you. And that made a policing role very pleasurable and very efficient. It wasn't an onerous job as far as that goes, but we certainly put in the hours. In, in small country towns, you, you never knocked off. You were a policeman 24 hours a day. You didn't take the uniform off at the end of the day and go home and forget all about it. Three or four times a week, you'd be sitting down to dinner on the phone and ring, and you mightn't get home for another two days, <laughs> particularly if you had several hundred kilometres to travel uh, within your division to do a job. And in some of the outback country stations, you certainly did that. For example, when we were at Normanton, it was quite common for us to, have to drive to uh, Kawanyama, or Mitchell River as it was known then, which is two, three hundred kilometres north of, of Normanton on a um, two-wheel dirt track, weather permitting. How did you get from there to southwestern Western Australia? <laughs> well, we had kids, and our kids decided they wanted to move to... Um, to Western Australia. My son-in-law got a job over here. They had the height to bring our grandkids over with them. <laughs> when they moved over here, we came to visit them. We spent a considerable amount of time over here and were actually on our way home. On our way home, we got as far as Alice Springs and the daughter rang up one day and said, Mum, Dad, we've just moved to Bunbury and we can't get a babysitter. Can you come back and help us with the kids till Christmas? So... We did just that. Instead of turning right at the freeways, we went up to Darwin and turned left and came back to Western Australia and um, six months down the track, we started to wonder what we were going home to and really there wasn't a lot for us to go home to apart from the friends we'd left behind but our family was now all over here so we decided to uh, sell up in Queensland and... Um, they had built in Bunbury or Australin. That's when I became involved with the men's shed. Because I imagine it's not the easiest thing in the world to inject yourself into a new community, although, to be fair, you probably had more practice at it than most given your past, but it isn't that easy to just drop into a community, and I imagine the shed greased that wheel a bit, did it? You're exactly right. The big difference is uh, when we were in Queensland and I was working, when you go to a new town and you've got a role in that town and you have a, a position in that town, it's, it's very easy to meet people and get to know people and sort out which is what. When you haven't got that job to go to, you know no one in the community, it can be a pretty lonely place. Very, very difficult to do with. Especially if you're at a stage of life, Jerry, where everyone has their networks and they have their mates and the welcome sign isn't necessarily posted out the front of everyone's door, is it? No, it's not. It's not. And uh, my wife was walking the dog one day and she happened to walk past a man's shed and dropped in and spoke to someone and she came home that day and said, you ought to go down there and have a look at those old codgers. <laughs> so I thought, well... Nothing to lose, and um, I did just that the very following day. I walked in here, introduced myself, 
and um, right from the outset I was made so welcome. Uh, the guys just dropped everything and couldn't have done enough to make me feel welcome, showed me around the place, told me what it was all about and uh, I thought well I've got to give this a go and I did just that, I joined. That continued right throughout the membership of the Shed. That's absolutely brilliant. Jerry. I could talk to you all day. I could fill an entire episode on any aspect of your life, let alone your life altogether. It just occurred to me, at some point you would have been Sergeant Savage. Is that right? <laughs> yes, I was. And uh, <laughs> used to get quite a few comments. I was going to say, let me tell you, if my teenage son was misbehaving, I told him I'd call Sergeant Savage. He'd straighten up real quick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, really brilliant to talk to you, and thanks very much for being our shedder in the spotlight, Jerry. Lovely pleasure talking with you, Aaron. Jerry Savage there, who is a former president, now just a member of the Leshenault Men's Shed, telling us his life story. Shed Story. Let's find out more about our shed in the spotlight. To tell us all about how the Leshenault Men's Shed came to be and indeed what it is like in 2020, we're joined by committeeman John Saunders. G'day, John. G'day. Tell us the history of the Leshenault Men's Shed. Well, going back into uh, March 2009, I got a call from a friend of mine, Bill Adams. He said, um, you know, I want to buy you a free cup of coffee. <laughs> Those free cups of coffee can be very expensive, can't they? <laughs> That's for that's for sure. So I had a cup of coffee with Bill, and he had been very very keen to have a men's shed uh, built. And I'd read up on men's sheds previously, so I knew a fair bit about what he was saying. So after the discussion, I said, "Well, look, I'll, I'll put it to my Rotary Club, and we'll see where it goes from from there." So at the next meeting, I spoke on the idea. The Rotary Club said they would and that they would be prepared to put in $30,000 into the into the project. So immediately after the meeting, uh, we got together with five others. There was myself, uh, Paul Cassidy, who was a main roads engineer, Ryan Peace, who ran Bustle and Outdoor World, so he's a shed builder and so forth, Dave Jones, who was a town planner, and Greg Bromley, who was a residential designer. And uh, then Brian says, well, look, we've got seven days to get the whole thing together. Uh, so you can imagine we've got to get all of the financials, we'll produce a plan, uh, get costings on it, uh, uh, talk to the council about whether they would support it, because without that support, uh, we wouldn't mm-hmm. agree with the grant. So we worked day and night there, and one hour before the deadline, I delivered the application to the Southwest Development Commission. So being a Rotary Club, of course, we have a lot of expertise in there, one of the other guys involved, and of course we had our treasurer because we're spending money, Peter Hare involved at that stage to over, oversee those sort of things. So we got the grant, got approval for the grant, and then, so we had approval for a grant but nowhere to go. Uh, council was saying that supported, uh, but we didn't have any land. So we looked at, uh, Bill and I looked at a number of uh, alternatives and uh, came down to a site 
uh, in the Leshenal Leisure Centre, which is so we selected a block there alongside Morrissey Homestead. Uh, the block we looked at was 30 metres wide, 50 metres deep, so it was 1,550 square metres. So then we had to raise some more money. So we had, in those days, it was more difficult to get uh, money for sheds. So we were going to have to build this thing off Schuster. So the shed itself uh, was 23 metres long. Uh, it was 250 square metres uh, of uh, space and about 100 square metres was going to be taken up by wet areas, kitchens and um, the meeting room where I am right now. So we said, okay, one of the things we've learned from being in real estate is once you start the project, people believe it's going to happen. So uh, we got a quote, just over $40,000, and we had the actual shell uh, shed built. Brilliant. Tell me about your part of the world and the mix of men that the shed attracts. Yeah, well, this part of the world is pretty fantastic. Uh, down here, I come from from the country down to uh, this Bundy region, uh, but there's uh, you know water everywhere down here. We're on the coast. We've got rivers everywhere, and you know the north end of the southwest. Um, and, and you go south, there's all sorts of rivers and big trees and fantastic fishing spots, all those sort of things. So it's one of the I think it's one of the two best places in Australia, so the North Queensland or the southwest of WA. Yeah, I have to say, I've been a lot of places in the world and seen a fair chunk of Australia, and yep. that corner over there, although you're on the top end of the corner, if you want yep. to put it that way, but that corner over there is as beautiful as any place on the planet, I reckon. Yes, no, I, I, I certainly agree with you. What's the major industry there? Uh, major industry here is, uh, is mining, but we've got... Huge diversity from fishing to farming to forestry to manufacturing, you know, so it, it's very diverse. And what sort of vibe does that give you a shed? Oh, look, it's good. We've got all sorts of people uh, in the shed from ex-CEOs of local government, trade people, a lot of professional people in the, in the shed as well. So it, it gives us a huge advantage in the management of the shed. One question I always like to ask the sheds that I talk to is, what is it that makes your shed work? What's your little bit of lightning in the bottle? Look, I think the, the interest of the men to enjoy a, a better better life, so it's all about the health and well-being of men and the camaraderie that they get out of it by being in the shed is probably the biggest thing. So we, we've all got to remember what the purpose or the outcome that's a brilliant thought to leave our conversation on. John, congratulations on your role in creating the shed over there and its ongoing success. Congratulations on choosing one of the best parts in the world to call home. And thanks very much for telling us your shed story on the Shed Wireless. No problem. That is John Saunders there, committeeman and co-founder of the Leshenault Men's Shed. Would you like to put your shed in the spotlight? Just contact us via email, theshedwireless at mensshed.net, and we'll take care of the rest. Until it sets up on the now and the evermore. Goodbye to the life we knew. Don't save it till the end. It could
That's a little taste of Now and the Evermore, the new single from Colin Hay. Don't worry, you will hear a little more later on. Our special guest this episode is immortalised forever in Australian popular culture, singing Australia's unofficial national anthem, Down Under, which is a little ironic, not only because he was born in Scotland, but because the song was initially conceived as a critique of some of the poor choices Australia was making as a nation. But that song isn't within cooey of his best work, in my opinion. And in the many years since, he has carved a critically acclaimed body of work and some major popular successes as well, whether it be having his music featured on the hit TV show Scrubs or making magic with Ringo Starr and Friends. These days, he calls LA home, and he can actually see his home on the film clip for Now and the Evermore. And he joins us from there right now, Colin Hay. Welcome to The Shed Wireless. Nice to be with you. Very nice to be with you indeed. I know you have a beautiful backyard because you can see you and your wife dancing in it in the film clip of Now and the Evermore. But do you have an actual shed? Uh, no, we have, um, well, I have a couple of things. Uh, I have a, we have a floating bed, which uh, is not a shed, uh, but that's really, it's like a, uh, this guy invented it over here, and uh, Cecilia, my wife, uh, saw one and and um, or met him, and uh, it's basically a, a bed that floats, and it's in a it's in a, a triangle. It's like, it's like a pyramid, um, but not a shed uh, per se. Um, I have I have a studio uh, downstairs that I work in, uh, which I think really does qualify as, as a shed you know it's where i it, it's basically you know where i work you know I've, I've been lucky because i've i've been able to you know what i do requires really going to the shed you know which is the studio downstairs and working on ideas and writing songs and recording them and and i have to go down steps and i think it's very important that if you're going to go from the house to the shed there has to be steps involved the psychological crossing over as it were I'm going to work now, or I'm going to do some. I'm going to do something else um, for what I was doing before, and steps are important. That invites the question: Then you still get joy and purpose from making music, do you? Yeah, I, I mean, I I really love it, uh, and I always have. I suppose I've been very lucky and fortunate in 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 all kinds of ways uh, as far as my life goes. I was very lucky growing up, you know, having parents you know having two parents and, and having a, a family which um you know all families all families have interesting uh, quirks and idiosyncrasies but i never wanted for love and support and um i wouldn't say like i'm driven but when i was you know when i was um you know from the age of 13 or 14 i just started writing little tunes and little ideas little songs and uh, I got a lot of pleasure out of that, and um, and I still do. Uh, and over the last few months since we've been locked down, and normally I'm I'm always on the road. I have maybe two or three weeks at home, and then I go off again uh, somewhere and, and and on tour. So um, you know, my tour got cancelled. So I've been home for the last few months, and um, I'm almost I almost feel I almost feel guilty about it because I've I've been very happy. Uh, being at home uh, and being downstairs in the studio, and it's given me a chance to to uh, learn things and take uh, online guitar lessons and 
and then also work on ideas that I've had for a while and just have the have the studio as a place where I um where I work and and uh, experiment and and mess around down there and come up with ideas and record them. So uh, yeah, it's it's um it, it's exciting. I I really um. I really like it. It's probably my favorite part of it. I mean, I I don't mind going on the road, but it's kind of I, I try to I try to figure out whether it's just perhaps habit because I've been doing it for thirty five years or something, and I and um, and I think I know why I do it um, uh, so much and and so often and for so long. Uh, you know, it, it's it makes you feel um, useful in some way. So I think that's got a lot to do with it. When I came over to live in in the Los in Los Angeles, um, I was you know I really I was dropped. I mean I didn't have I wasn't starving I wasn't poor I wasn't hurting for money, um, but I was trying to figure out what I was going to do because I'd been dropped by uh, major labels and I really didn't I didn't have any kind of management or anyone booking shows or anything. So I just went on the road, and the thing that uh, kept me nourished and, and interested and and uh, were the were the audiences and so the audiences and the fans and the audiences were and there weren't that many of them you know sometimes I was playing to 40 50 people and that's just developed over the last couple of decades uh, to be um, you know to be playing to more people but uh, that was what uh, really sustained me over those years uh, for so long so I I I feel a compulsion and, and indeed a responsibility to to stay on the road at some at least for, for parts of the year you know since we've gone down this path, I wanted to engage you on this, the idea of purpose and identity and self-worth. Lots of the people who listen to The Shed Wireless are at a stage in life where they were known for one thing, a lot of their sense of self was wrapped up in their job or their career, and now they've moved beyond that and they have to reinvent themselves. And while you did it much, much younger in life, you underwent this process. You had to find a way forward, and it wasn't always easy for you. Well, I think you're always you're always making sense of that. Really, you're always. Um, well, I think I, I think a few things about what you said. I think that in your professional life, you kind of, you. Know, I think this is probably true. Uh, for women as well, but I'm not really sure because I'm, I, you know, I'm obviously I'm not a woman. But it reminds me of that lyric but, from Beautiful World: uh, "You can go yeah. out beyond the white breakers where a man can still be can. free, or a woman if you are one." Yeah, if you are one, yes, yes. If you happen to be a woman, yes, you can you can feel free going beyond the white breakers quite uh, quite easily. But no, I think you get to I think you can get to a certain a certain point uh, through your ego and and drive and ambition, which I think a lot of men have. And it, and it and it really creates a lot of success, and it gets gets you to a certain point. Um, but it's it's not a it it's not particularly holistic. And so, you know, as you get on in years, you you kind of uh, you know something else. I think anyway, something else has to has to come into play. You know, which is, you know, you have to develop constantly try and develop a, a better relationship with yourself you know, and, you know, develop ways how you can be, uh, you know, kind to yourself and to understand uh, yourself in the relationship with the rest of the world. You know, and I, I came over here uh, to the United States because I was getting divorced and I was, I was, I was um, 
struggling with a drink, you know. So I kind of, um, my going on the road and playing music for people was a way of, of um, dealing with that in a sense or, or, or creating some kind of salvation, giving myself giving myself um, a purpose and, and that feeling of that I was useful, that I was, that I was uh, worth, uh, uh, you know, something as opposed to being, you know, the guy that wrote Down Under. Now, I really love Down Under. I have no, I have no problem with it. But you, you kind of, you think, okay, well, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And, and you, you can't really have that as a yardstick because if you, if you do, you'll, you'll, you'll go mad. But so I'm very lucky again. I say, I keep on saying I'm lucky, but, but I really am because, you know, I had people, you know, audiences uh, were saying to me, look, please don't stop what you're doing because they obviously got, you know, got something out of what I was trying to say, you know, and, and, and I guess what I was trying to say was, you know, you, you have to make sense if you're say someone 60 plus, like you I think you said a lot of your, your listeners are, you know, yeah, you, you have to you have to make sense of the day, you know, not just not, not the past, not the not the, you know, not tomorrow or the week next week, but you have to make sense of what it is you're gonna you're gonna do from, uh, you know, in the present in in the present, what you're gonna do with this day because you have this, you know, you become as you get older, you do become aware of your own mortality, and um, you know you have to, you know, in a best case scenario. You have to find something, you know, creative or useful, a useful activity which takes you away from from being so aware of time passing, and sometimes that's, um, you know, involves being of service of some kind, you know, and it's even if it's if it's lending your your skills, um, but it, it usually has to do with uh, making connections with other people, and uh, and that's that's a, a particularly you know, nourishing thing to do, and I don't think the importance of of uh, of true friendship can be can be really overstated, especially as, as you get older. You know, you don't need a lot of friends, but you need need a few really good ones in order to to feel good about your day. You know. Yeah, a lot of wisdom to digest there. I want to go back to beautiful world lyrics again. There's a line there that says, "And still, this emptiness persists. Perhaps this is as good as it gets." When you've given up the drink and those nasty cigarettes, now I leave the party, but at least with no regrets. I watch the sun as it comes up. I watch it as it sets. Yeah, this is as good as it gets. Is there still an emptiness? Or 17 years on from writing that song, have you found a peace? Well, yeah, there, there is a. I suppose there's a there's a wondering, isn't there? There's a there's a wondering about. Uh, you know, not being a religious person, um, having a, having a, you know, uh, going from between uh, the acceptance of religion, all religions, different religions, whether it's uh, you know Christianity or or Islam or or Judaism, whatever whatever the the religions are, I have a, you know, a, a lot of my friends are some of my friends are, are are religious and a lot of them are not, but I I, I tend to. I have a certain amount of contempt for, for organized religion and, and, and its place in what it's done in, in history and, and, and continues to. But, um, you know, I don't particularly uh, feel uh, that it's my place to, to make that particularly public unless somebody asks me. But, but there, is a, there is a wondering about um, the universe and, and, and it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a great sense of wonder. I, I get great... Um, fulfillment out of out of uh, scientific discovery and 
But, you know, one does wonder about what happens uh, when you go. I mean, I, I have a suspicion that, you know, the curtains close and that's it, really. But, but and we all, we all get to really, you know, we all really get to find out. But uh, so it's not, I don't have a, I don't really have a, I don't really have a set, an emptiness as much as I did probably when I wrote that song. Because when I wrote that song, I was, I was freshly off the drink. And so I was struggling with, with um, erratic behavior still. A lot, a lot of things have changed uh, since then. And there it is. Give up the drink and the nasty cigarettes. Now I leave the party at least with no regrets, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I think that's what that means is I think that addiction is really, it's an interesting subject and, and it's, it's devastating. It's, it's a devastating thing for, for, uh, for all, in all societies and all cultures, especially alcohol. I mean, alcohol for me is, is, is such a socially accepted thing. And um, it's one of the reasons I had to leave Australia. And uh, I didn't, you know, particularly want to leave Australia. I had the opportunity to. And so I took that opportunity, but I found myself struggling there uh, because a lot of my friends were also very, very successful, uh, you know, alcoholics and drug addicts and, and successful people doing very, very well, but would get really seriously uh, messed up a lot of the time. And I was, I was, I was, uh, uh, I was one of those guys, you know, and I had to, and I wanted to get out of that and I wanted to start again. I wanted to give myself a sense of wonder about the world again. And, and I, and I wanted to create things. I wanted to keep making music and I, I wanted to not lose my sharpness or if you want to call it that. And so I, you know, I, and, and so I came over here. So you say that after having given it a lot of thought, your best guess is that the curtain just comes down one day. Are you good with that? Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, you know, because you don't, you're not going <laughs> to, you're not going to know it's going to be like before you were born, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that, I think what scares a lot of people, and indeed it's a scary thing. I mean, I, I, I think about, we don't really talk about death. You know, we don't talk about the that real big, you know, gaping chasm of it. You think, well, fuck, at the end of this, we die, you know, we are no more, you know, and I think a lot of people go, oh, well, that's not going to happen to me. I'm going to go to heaven. Well, you know, if that's your belief system, well, well, good on you. I'm not going to try and, uh, I'm not going to try and uh, convince you otherwise, you know. I remember, I remember talking to my father before my father passed away, obviously. And um, although I still do talk to him, but um, sometimes he gets back to me and sometimes not. <laughs> you know, I said to him, do you think there's a God, Dad? You know, and he just looked at me for a minute and he says, eh, probably not. And I thought, that's it. It's you're, you're only you're only you're you're dealing with probabilities, you know. And I think there's a high, very very high probability that there isn't, and that's about the best you can do, you know. Instead of trying to prove to someone that there isn't, or listen to somebody try and prove to you that there is, you know. But I think that we're really, you know, at the present time, it's 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 both demoralizing and and debilitating almost but it's also incredibly exciting because it's almost like you know I live here in the states and we have this you know we have this uh, this uh, mad person running the show and 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 um and you know it's almost like uh, the country's hit a bottom you know it's almost like an alcoholic is 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 you know you you hit your bottom and you, and you can only go up from there um and and the the exciting thing of people uh, protesting in the streets and and uh, 
and the things and and the the systemic change that may that may that may occur, which has to occur, it has to occur unless uh, if we're going to move forward, and uh, all these things that happen, they're all connected, and and even like the things that we are talking about about men being able to communicate with one another is a very very important thing in that process because traditionally you know we haven't been able to do that very well indeed you know my old band for example broke up because of our inability to communicate with one another you know when we were on top of the world and uh, we just couldn't communicate with one another because we don't do it very well and so we you know so the thing fell apart you know whereas if we had have been able to sit down and talk about what was going on it may well have had a different um a different outcome so i think that you know we're at this point in time where i still feel hopeful about um you know mankind humankind if you like and uh, but we've got we've got in terms of the future we have a minute or two you know in in the scheme of things to try and uh, turn things around, you know, climatically or environmentally. And, I'm, you know, I can't be bothered talking to people anymore who, who talk about it in terms of, oh, you know, you have this liberal view or, or what it is. It's just like that's where, you know, you listen to the science. You listen to 97% of the scientists. That's who I'm going to listen to who if they're talking to me about what's going on climatically, you know. Um, if you want to have a different view, that's fine. But t- tell somebody else, you know, because I'm not interested anymore, you know. Listening to your philosophy in this conversation, there appears to be something of a paradox, and yet it makes sense when you explain it. You've performed in front of 300,000 people. You've been a household name. You've been a rock star. You hang out with Beatles. And yet, the joy that you have found in your life has come from small things. Have I paraphrased your philosophy accurately there? Yeah, I, th- I think there really only are small and simple things. You know, I think I think they're the things that um, I think Paul Kelly said it best, didn't he? You know, from little things. What's, what's the song? Little things, big things grow. Yeah, from little things, big things grow. Yeah, big things grow. Uh, you know, so you know, he's a wise man, and um, there really only is the smallness. It's it's all in the details of, of life. You know. Um, it's almost like uh, the way I think about it or, or the way I felt about it a, a while ago was when I was flying high, if you like, or I'd, I'd achieved this, all the success that I thought that I wanted. It's never enough. You know, you think, okay, I want more. Can I have more of everything, please? You know, maybe that's just the addict in me talking. But I think a lot of people are, are, are like that. They think, oh, you, you, and then you start to compete with your past. You start to compete with yourself, and uh, something else has to something else has to come into play. There has to be a more holistic approach to your life. All over the world, for as long as there has been popular music, there have been musicians in their back shed or in their spare bedroom dreaming of writing that song that enters popular culture, becomes part of the musical vernacular. You did that. Do you ever take time to reflect on the idea that you're immortalised in Australian culture? Your voice, your music is forever going to be perhaps the defining piece of music for a nation. I mean, other people have a very different uh, view of it. You know, I don't really think in terms of, well, I'll be remembered in terms of having this 
down under song. But if 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 indeed that's the case, well, well you know, that, that's fine. <laughs> I have no problem with that. Oh, you are easy going these days. Your wife Cecilia performs on your latest single as well. She's a respected musician in her own right. What does she bring to your life? She's a she's a singer. She writes writes songs. She's a good producer. And I used to take people to see her band before I knew her. You know, I would take people to see Cecilia's band. It was one of the most awesome bands in Los Angeles. And she had she was signed to Epic Records, and she had one of the one of the most successful bands in LA, and and indeed had some of the best musicians in the country playing with her. So, but I think that more than anything, over the years, uh, she's pushed me to be to to do different things. She's pushed me to be to uh, into areas that I wouldn't necessarily, you know, get involved. She's introduced me to great musicians that I wouldn't have met otherwise, and so she's always just kind of she's a she's a great fan as well like she likes my music which is always great but she's um pushes me forward and and inspires me to do different things that i wouldn't you know necessarily have thought of myself a great gift in your world our time together has come to an end colin hay it has been an honor to walk through your memories your music have you share some of your wisdom and we'll bring down the curtain with a full play of Now and the Evermore. You can let it wash over you and, and hopefully you'll get something from it. Thanks for being on The Shed Wireless, Colin Hay. My pleasure. Be well and keep your mask on. Woke up Sunday morning Salvation Army at my door Playing on with Christian soldiers Till I couldn't take it anymore I ran across the graves at night With those three witches at my tail I heard the wail of the now and the all things are never equal And I don't know who is keeping score Nobody gets a sequel, no Everyone gets shown the door I'll be counting on the rising sun To give me all my waking Until it sets up on the now and the evermore Goodbye to the life we knew Don't save it till the end It could be me, it could be you Or some old long lost friend But if I'm calling out your name I know if you can hear me, you will come You can leave a note or light a flame Sing a song or even bang a drum I saw the lady Katrina She was all a-jangling at the bar Playing an Italian concertina You know 
She's really quite the star She told me everything's a circle dance And we had been here many times before And we're all a part of the now and the evermore Goodbye to the waterside And down that shady lane In case you're lost and wandering It does not look the same Goodbye to the life we knew Some rules you just can't bend Please make me one with everything Before I reach the end G'day, Shadows Ripwood Chip here. How are you all going today? I've just been cleaning up the yard and dusting off the barbecue because we've got all the kids coming over for Father's Day this weekend. I haven't seen them all for a few weeks now. It's near killing me. I remember a time not that long ago, I couldn't wait to get the buggers out of the house. But now I kind of wish they'd never left. Gets a bit quiet around here without them. Mind you, after a few hours of everyone being here, especially with all the grandkids running around like headless jolts, waving them out the driveway can be somewhat of a relief. Ah, but I've got to get me dose of them on a regular basis. It recharges the batteries. Yeah, this might surprise you a lot, but beneath this tough, rugged and extremely good-looking exterior, there lies the heart of a teddy bear. Oh yeah, Uncle Rip is a big bloody softy. I'm more emotional than a bogger on a boat and a blower. I was the snag way before it was even chic. Maybe I even started the trend. Wasn't always that way, though. It wasn't until me latter days that I was comfortable enough to realise it's okay to show your affection. It wasn't quite the example that was set for me as a young fella. You see, me old man was a tough old bastard. He was as hard as they come. He worked his butt off every bloody day of his life to provide for us all. And he would dig you out of the shit any time you needed it. And he sure did some digging over the years, that's for sure. But he was never one to show his feelings. Unless he was angry. Oh boy. Nah, not exactly the type of bloke you could go and cry on his shoulder if you needed to. Just not that type of bloke. I don't hold it against him though. He was the provider and mum was the one that took care of the rest, I guess. That's just how the attitude was back then. Blokes back then just had a different way of showing their affection. Their job was to put food on the table and to set an example. But between mum and dad, there was this yin-yang thing, you know. Dad showed us how to be tough, and Mum showed us the love. I always thought that was a bit of a pity, though. I would have gladly copped a clip under the ear from Mum in exchange for a hug from the old man. I reckon I could count on one hand the amount of times I hugged the old fella, and that was only when he was old enough not to stop me. And that's probably the reason I am the way I am today, and make sure I let the kids know just how much I love the buggers, every chance I get, and I do. I'm a hugger, that's for sure, whether you like it or not. If I like you, I'm going in for the bear hug every time. 
It's just a generational adjustment, you know, like a lot of things. I remember back in school, if you liked a girl, you'd throw rocks at her to get her attention. I was never really good at writing poetry. I wouldn't go trying that nowadays, though. You're likely to get bloody sued. But that's how I met my beautiful lady. Now the best way to get her attention is to throw my dirty clothes on the floor. Crikey, does that get a reaction? But it just wasn't the done thing back then. Blokes were made to feel like showing emotion was a sign of weakness. But I reckon it's been one of my greatest strengths. And that's why I like it down the shed. We're all at that age where you don't have to bloody try and impress anyone anymore. You don't have to pretend to be somebody you're not. Show me how tough you are by showing me how confident you are to show your feelings. Anyway, Shedders, I better go hide me grog before the kids get here, or it's going to be a dry old argument on Father's Day. All right, fellas, have a happy Father's Day. Catch you next time. See you, fellas. Got a question? Ask the doc. Professor Rob McLaughlin from AMSA Partners Healthy Mail. Last episode, we really got into the nitty-gritty of prostate cancer, and there was a lot of good news and some pretty harsh reality checks as well. I would summarise it down to, it isn't as bad as you've heard, but it very well could be if you ignore it. Yes, if you are a man over 50, prostate cancer needs to be on your radar because it can kill you. But the horror stories that you heard from your dad and your grandfather don't take into account some of the great modern advances. If you haven't listened to the last two chats, I encourage you to do so. You'll get a real wake-up call, and then you'll probably get some peace of mind, and hopefully an action plan as well. But there's still much more to learn about our little friend that lives where our butt meets our nuts. And so we once again have assembled our crack troops, the best in the business, our regular here on The Shed Wireless, Professor Rob McLaughlin, AM, Medical Director at Healthy Mail, among many other things. Hello and welcome, Rob. Okay, Aaron. And we've also been fortunate enough to get a little more time with urologic surgeon and director of clinical research at the urology unit at Alfred Health, Associate Professor Jeremy Grummet. Hello, Jeremy. G'day, Aaron. How are you going? Great. Thank you. Thank you both for being here again. Let's start by revisiting some of those key messages from our previous chat. Perhaps we'll come to you first, Rob, and then we can go second level with Jeremy. Why should prostate cancer be on our radar, Rob? Well, I think you've outlined it very well in the intro there, Aaron. I mean, it's, it is a common condition. It's one of the commonest causes of, of cancer and cancer death in Australian men. Uh, it's a, something that affects us from middle age and beyond that. Uh, it's something that you really can't ignore uh, and people don't. I mean, guys do talk about this either openly or between themselves. And so I think it's something we need to really have a, a clear understanding of what you should do if it's on your mind, and it should be on your mind. Jeremy, if I can ask a pointed question, and I don't expect accurate data about this, more anecdote based on experience, how many fatal prostate cancers have you seen that you reckon you could have saved the guy if you'd got it earlier? Mm, That is a good question. That's, I suppose, you know, the automatic answer to that is, well, that is completely theoretical because you you cannot know which ones uh, for sure that you could save. What we do know, however, is that by early detection of prostate cancer, when it's still contained within the prostate gland, that is really our absolute best chance of 
curing prostate cancer. And and I think one of the main points that I hope the last episode got across is that you know a lot of people un- understand this notion of you know prostate cancer is super common. Most people it just sits there and you die with it, not of it. And to sort of answer your question, that that is true in the main. The vast majority of men with prostate cancer don't die of prostate cancer, but there is a very significant minority who do, and and to the point where you know more than three thousand men in Australia every year will die of prostate cancer. Now, you can't say therefore that we can just forget about prostate cancer when you've got more than three thousand men dying of it every year just in this country. Rob, we came to the edge of this subject matter in the last chat, but. If I know how men work, they want to look at every possible scenario and prepare themselves for what the worst might look like. So in the last episode, we said, okay, you've gone for your test. For the majority of people, you'll be fine. If there is something, there's a range of interventions and processes that can be undertaken. We talked about those. Let's say I have had a prostate cancer treatment and... I now have to live with it. In fact, Rob, I'll go to Jeremy and we'll talk about the the anatomy of it first of all, and then we might come back to you for a bit about the psychology of it. So first of all, anatomically and practically, what is life after prostate cancer like, Jeremy? And I realise there is no single answer to that question either. No, no, but it but it's a super important question, Aaron, and, and it's probably one of the things that perhaps frightens men away from getting tested in the first place. So um, I'll try and keep it as simple as possible. Now, there are different treatments for uh, prostate cancer that is contained within the prostate. But if we just take surgery, which is the mainstay, that's the commonest, but radiotherapy is another option. Um, the two or the most common side effect of that is of that treatment is erectile dysfunction. And the reason for that is exactly as you say, and that's because of the anatomy. It's where the prostate sits in relation to these other very important structures and organs in the body. So the erectile nerves, that is the nerves that supply men's penis with erectile function, travel, unfortunately, immediately alongside the prostate. So whether you treat that prostate by removing it or irradiating it, those nerves are at high risk, even when we try our best with either treatment modality to preserve those nerves. So for example, um, you might have an erect, a rate of erectile dysfunction that's between 30 and 50%. You know, let's say you've got a, a bloke in his, who's 58, for example, who is sexually active. It's a, it's a major part of his quality of life and he has a radical prostatectomy and then no longer is able to achieve natural erections. That is a big deal. And I, I think that's worth further conversation as to how we actually go about treating that and even preventing it in the first place. So, Rob, the reality is if you are a 58-year-old bloke, you do have an aggressive cancer that could mean you don't get to be a 60-year-old bloke. Of course, you're going to opt for the removal of it. But as a doctor, you've got to tell that guy, flip a coin, heads, it still works, tails, it doesn't. That's pretty confronting. Uh, well, it is. And I guess you you rely on the optimistic view that uh, with the, the best uh, surgery or other intervention that you are offering, that the risk of damage to the nerves is reduced. And if there is some uh, damage, it may recover. It may only be a transient or temporary or partial problem. 
that you can assist uh, the erections down the track uh, with uh, drugs such as the you know, Viagra type medications or with uh, injection therapy in the penis. There are other, you know, if you like, medical ways to assist uh, an erection if there is any function there remaining. And there are other options even further down the track. But, you know, you, you can't dwell on, I suppose, or allow this concern to overshadow the fact that this is you know, potentially a life-saving, life-restoring event. And that uh, if the worst does come, come to it, there are health uh, discussions you can have, uh, support groups, uh, and other men who've been down the same way, you, you might uh, find someone who can tell you about, well, you know, in fact, it's not the end of the world. There are different ways to express your, your affection and and, uh, and your sexuality other than with an erection. So you, know, you just don't know what the future holds. It is a terribly disturbing time. There's no doubt about it. The friends, family, buddies at the shed, if, you, if you're open to that discussion, uh, or with your local doctor or with a professional counsellors, there are people there to assist I don't know that the, the surgeons such as Jeremy are you know, well aware of this. And so there's very early uh, people are going to be offered those support services. Rob, it, was, it leads into perfectly into this whole other sphere of, of potentially preventing unnecessary treatment as well. So we, we've talked about, you're absolutely right, if you've got an aggressive prostate cancer and you've got a, li- a life expectancy of you know, more than 15 years, then yes, um, we, would, we would highly recommend that you have treatment to cure that. But I think one of the controversies that men uh, are grappling with is is that knowledge that there are so many prostate cancers out there which are not harmful and they do not wish to sacrifice their normal erectile function if they're not really certain that that prostate cancer is a threat to their health. And this, this is where this whole concept comes in of what's what we call active surveillance. So sometimes we'll diagnose a prostate cancer and it's a low grade. It has no features of being aggressive. And they're, they're the men who we can safely observe closely and not even treat and therefore preserve their normal erectile function or urinary continence or other pelvic organ function. So I think that's something that it'd be, it's really important that men in the community are aware of. Thanks, and Jerry, it's fair to say that Australia has taken a pretty, you know, a leading role in this uh, this notion, uh, even more so than other uh, overseas places, uh, to discuss this option with men. Uh, would you like to talk about Australia's role in this? Uh... Yeah, and look, I've, I've said, I think I've said this to you before, Rob. You know, if you if you are diagnosed with prostate cancer. You're very, very lucky if you happen to be living in Australia because I reckon that we are at the forefront of uh, both accurate diagnosis and appropriate management of the disease. And active surveillance for low-grade prostate cancer, I mean, we've published uh, multiple times on world-leading evidence showing that it is very safe and very appropriate um, to conduct active surveillance on men who really don't need to have their prostates treated put at risk. And then the the next step along from that, um, which is much more recent, active surveillance has been a concept that's been around for about a decade or so now, but the most recent development, and I think this is particularly exciting um, and something that I've actually involved with myself, is this concept of focal therapy. So you'll be familiar when, with, with women um, in the old days, if they had breast cancer, that it meant that their whole breast was removed a very you know, radical treatment, disfiguring. And we now know that in the vast majority of cases, it's simply not necessary that we can do a lumpectomy for a small breast cancer and cure the disease. Well, 
Now that we have imaging that we talked about in the last episode with MRI, we can actually identify where in the prostate a tumour is. And if it's just a single tumour, and not always, but if it is, then it lends itself to targeted treatment of the tumour alone um, without treating the entire or removing the entire prostate. And again, the whole aim is to preserve normal pelvic organ function, erectile function, continence, etc. So focal therapy, I think, is not yet standard of care by any means. But now that we have imaging, we're doing a lot of study and research uh, into it. And I strongly suspect that it will become an option uh, as we go forward into the future. And, and again, Australia is leading the way in that field as well. I just want to walk you back one step, Jeremy. This active surveillance that you're talking about would be very familiar to many people when it comes to skin cancers. You go and get a mole check. They say, look, that one's no good. That one's got to come off. Or we're just going to keep an eye on that one. So your annual check's going to become a four-monthly check from here on in, and we're going to keep a close eye on that. Is that a decent analogy? Yeah, I think it's pretty good. Uh, I, I suppose the only difference is that sometimes with dermatology and, and a mole check, the moles might be completely benign. With active surveillance, um, that's the term we use when we have actually diagnosed on tissue a prostate cancer, but it's a very low grade of prostate cancer. In fact, and here's yet another you know nuance and controversy within within this field is that you know some people uh, argue that those low grade prostate cancers probably shouldn't even be called the word cancer because when the patients hear it, it obviously triggers anxiety and in many people and they're not so willing to actually uh, allow themselves to be monitored even though that's their best option. It's a pretty loaded word. So going back then to the practicality and I realise, Jeremy, you are a surgeon and not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but certainly you would have had long-term relationships with men who would have completely dropped their bundle when they found out that their erectile function was going away and then gone through their stages of grief and come out the other side. Do you see men living fulsome lives post the worst scenario, as it were? Well, the worst scenario is you don't live, <laughs> post the worst surgical scenario? Look, I think there's there's multiple aspects to that. It's a, it's a great question. And what I uh, have have seen uh, is various ways of coping. But I think the starting point, which is critical, and I mean, this is really across the board of human psychology, really, is setting an expectation. So if we as treaters of prostate cancer say, you're going to be fine, chances are you're going to get erections, all good. And then, of course, the patient doesn't get satisfactory erection post-treatment then you can pretty much guarantee that they're going to be miserable and possibly angry. Um, and that sort of uh, expectation setting is so important. And so you're much better to um, deliver uh, better than what you actually advertise, if you like, in terms of the treatment. And, and I always make a point of saying that there is a very significant chance of getting a and B side effects. We've talked, we've really focused on erectile function because that is an important one, but there are others such as urinary incontinence, much less common, thankfully. But um, expectation is one thing. The other thing is what Rob mentioned, and that is the practical side of things. Whilst you may not be able to achieve a natural erection, there are very effective treatments um, whereby you can achieve a an unnatural erection, if you like, which still feels 
and operates like an erection. It just requires help either with a tablet or with um, self-injection, um, which we can teach the patients um, actually how to do that to get an erection. So again, you lot, there's a bit of loss of spontaneity um, that occurs with that. But I think it's really important that men aren't left post-prostate cancer treatment thinking there's nothing I can do because there are several options. And then finally, the, the other psychological aspect, of course, is that there are sexual counsellors available. Uh, and we very much encourage patients to see them. We refer to them from time to time if they're really struggling, grappling with the concept of, of not achieving natural erections without those other mechanisms of assistance. And as you mentioned last episode, it can still feel pretty good. If you can actually get the wood, you'll get the rest of the game, right? You know, you don't. speaking of wood, you don't actually have to get an erection. Like we were talking about last time, you can achieve an orgasm. You don't even have to have a partial erection. I've got many men um, who have unfortunately been left with erectile dysfunction post-radical prostatectomy for prostate cancer who cannot get an erection and they still achieve an orgasm. And funnily enough, you may be able to shed some light on this, Rob. I, I don't know uh, what the mechanism could be, but some of them even describe a more intense orgasm, even if they can't get an erection. And a lot of sex is happening between the ears as well, is it not? <laughs> you know, men, I think, can often be focused on intercourse and penetration, but I think what not being able to necessarily achieve an erection good enough for intercourse post-treatment allows them to explore a whole lot of other um, aspects of a sex life. Yeah, well, to bring it back to a shed context, all of the coppers and town planners who suddenly have to learn how to do metalwork or woodwork, well, you just might need to get some new skills, lads, if you find yourself in this situation. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It should be said as well, I'm not sure who this is better directed at, but you don't have to have your prostate out to have erectile dysfunction either, do you? It's a fairly, it's a fairly common thing well beyond this context. Oh, very, very, very much so, I mean, if numerically, it's much more likely to be due to other problems that affect the blood vessels and nerve health in the body. So the strong relationship between diabetes, blood pressure, high cholesterol and smoking, the usual bad five or four or five things you can get, high cholesterol particularly, these are all uh, going to uh, damage the nerves and damage the blood vessels, which are the structures which need to be working to get a, a good erection. So... Um, yeah, and you can, of course, have any number of those all combined together. And also mental health depression can also uh, find itself expressed that way. So erectile dysfunction, I think, is the subject of another talk I think we should have, uh, Aaron, because uh, it's a very big and very common issue, as you say, that most men uh, experience this as an issue to some degree uh, as they get older. And so it's something we should spend some time on. Well, I'm so glad you said that, Rob, because I don't know if I can get through a week without a long, at-length discussion about the state of penises these days. <laughs> it's pretty much... <laughs> it's become de rigueur for me. Well, it's much more in the public domain now. You know, a few years ago, we, we couldn't use the word erection in public. We, we had a campaign, I remember, 10 or, 10 or 15 years ago, to try and educate men about these facts. And we were sort of... So no, no, you can't say that in public. We couldn't use the word. So I think we've come a long, long way towards normalising these discussions in, in the public domain. You even hear it talked about on the morning television now. So you know, we're over that bit, but uh, we still have a little, little work to do, I think, to get men to, to internalise it, to put it to their own life and say, okay, I am 
at risk now. I can see what how this might all fit together. What should I do about it now before it's too late? So I think it's been a, a great advance. I think there's more frankness about prostate cancer, about hormone issues, about about either erectile dysfunction. It's much more discussed now. Even if you don't have cancer, life is short. So bouncing around in the dark, not understanding things does nobody any good. And so hopefully this partially illuminates it. I do know there would be a good percentage of people listening who would say, all right, no worries, you've set the table, but I just need to look into this myself. Is there some resources that you can recommend if people want to read a little bit more? Because I also know it might be as simple as a GP engagement, but people like to go forearmed with a little bit of information. Gentlemen? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first thing to say is go to the reputable sites. The internet is full of places that will lead you down rabbit holes and you don't want to go. So I would suggest myself that people look at the Healthy Mail uh, website. That's got a lot of information which will then reference you on to authoritative materials. <clears throat> there are other uh, very good sites about prostate cancer. The Prostate Cancer Foundation of Australia has got good materials. The Continence Foundation, for example, if you've got uh, problems with that aspect of, of care, are very good. Uh, of course, mental health is beyond blue, all sorts of things for people who are getting themselves depressed or finding themselves in a despairing situation. But um, be careful what you do read. And if you're in any doubt, you know, uh, fall back and self talk to your local doctor. But I'd start with Healthy Mail first. A Google search is a ranking of popularity, not necessarily credibility. So the idea of just doing a Dr. Google and doing your best is not recommended. Do go into one of those resources. Uh, You can't go too far wrong going from the Men's Shed website, the AMSA website, which is just uh, menshed.org, because it will take you whether you need to get some sort of mental health support, basically anything that can go wrong, there's a pathway from that website to some help. And if there isn't, then just drop them an email and we'll send you in the right direction. It's been a real pleasure to meet you and work with you in the last couple of weeks, Jeremy. Men are very lucky to have somebody of your calibre on the job. And if there's been an upside to COVID, it's that normally you would be in hours and hours of surgery every day and you've been able to hopefully do yourself out of a bit of work in the future because we've educated a few people through these conversations and you'll have a little bit less work to do, I hope. That's a a good result from my perspective. Both stay safe because I know you are both in a COVID hotspot. Rob, you're a legend. Thank you kindly. We will catch up next episode. And whether we whether we need to have an episode off from the penis or whether we go straight into erectile dysfunction, we'll make that decision between now and then. But thanks for being with us once again. No problem, Aaron. A pleasure. Thanks, Aaron. That is Associate Professor Jeremy Grummet, who is a urologic surgeon and Director of Clinical Research in the Urology Unit at Alfred Health, and also our regular here on Ask the Doc on the Shed Wireless, Professor Rob McLaughlin, AM Medical Director at Healthy Mail, among many other things. Hope that helps. I really do. For a great range of resources and tools to help you live well, head to the Spanner in the Works website. You can just search it up or go to malehealth.org.au. Everything you hear on The Shed Wireless is created to inform and is not intended to be a substitute for personal advice from your doctor. We've pulled the door closed on this episode of The Shed Wireless, but I want to at this point honour a request to dedicate this episode of The Shed Wireless to Rod Triplett. 
Now, Rod Triplett was the best-known builder in the Leshenault area. We heard from the Leshenault Men's Shed earlier in this episode. He only built homes in Australind. Rod was in his early 60s when he took on the building of the shed in Leshenault. He was a gentleman by all accounts who loved his fishing, the outdoors, his community, a generous person with a great personality and a positive attitude no matter what the circumstances. And before there was a formal men's shed, he ran an informal men's shed. Every Friday afternoon at Rod's Shed, there would be a get-together to have a few drinks, solve the problems of the world. He had prostate cancer, which is also poignant in this episode, and many men who were diagnosed came to Rod for advice, and his positive counselling was invaluable to many. But he was diagnosed with mesothelioma about the time they started construction in the shed, stayed positively behind the project all the way, and he was lucky enough to be able to see, if not today's version of the shed, certainly a high-functioning version of the shed come to life. So on behalf of John Saunders and the Leshenault Men's Shed, we want to dedicate this episode to Rod Triplett. Thank you also to Colin Hay and his management team, Professor Rob McLaughlin, Associate Professor Jeremy Grummet, Stuart Ribb, Helen Clare, and the whole AMSA team. And of course, to you, David, thank you very much. It ain't getting any any more quiet in the next couple of weeks for you, my friend. No, it's not. And thank you, Aaron. Thank you very much. We'll see you all next episode. The Shed Wireless is available via some community radio stations. Contact your local station to find out when you can hear us. If they don't have the show, put them in touch and we'll help them out. You can also find The Shed Wireless in Apple iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Red Circle or just Google us. Wherever you find us, please subscribe so that each new episode gets delivered straight to you. Giving a rating or review helps others to find us more easily. But most of all, please share us with your mates even if they've never seen a shed through email, newsletters, word of mouth ring a mate and give him the tip maybe your wife might even like it we love your email correspondence to theshedwireless at mensshed.net or just head to the AMSA website www.menshed.org and see what's going on with the shed online while you're there it's also a great way to connect with a range of resources, websites and national helplines including Beyond Blue If you're experiencing a mental health crisis, call Lifeline Australia on 13 11 14 or Men's Line on 1300 99 78 99. Thanks for listening to The Shed Wireless, the wireless you'd listen to if you were in the shed. (laughs) 